AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. We explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barnes. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Damian Sassauer. Coming up, we'll talk with the commissioner of the NCAA's Mountain West Conference, Gloria Navarez, and we'll get her thoughts on how the Big Ten keeps getting bigger and what all the conference realignments could mean for Mountain West. The change is so significant, right? This is a change unlike we've ever seen before and a consolidation of leagues from five geographically balanced to four. Navarez is also just the second female commissioner of an FBS conference and the first Latina conference commissioner in D1 history. We'll also check in on the Women's World Cup. And as the competition whittles down, we'll take a look at some of this year's bigger surprises. It's the first time Germany loses in a group stage match since 1995. All that and more straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. But first, we saw a huge headline in sports betting this week. Yep, ESPN finally diving in headfirst into sports betting after parent company Walt Disney struck a deal with Penn Entertainment. Wow. For more on what it means for Penn and the House of Mouse, we welcome Bloomberg Media reporter Jerry Smith. Jerry, welcome to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Thank you. Well, let's start from the beginning. ESPN and a marriage with sports and sports betting. Some people like it and some people don't. That's right. I mean, if you go back a few years, this was unthinkable uh, because ESPN is owned by Disney and Disney takes a lot of effort to uh, puts in a lot of effort to cultivate this family friendly image. And a few years ago, gambling was really seen as taboo and, and things have really changed. Uh, it's obviously legal now in more than half the states in the country. And we're now seeing sports leagues that are embracing uh, sports betting. And so ESPN now is saying, well, it, this is not as uh, controversial of a topic as it used to be, and ESPN certainly uh, could use the money given the challenges they're facing in the cable business right now. So this is a cash infusion of, what, $1.5 billion over 10 years to ESPN. Jerry, Penn Entertainment is the partner that uh, ESPN is working with here. Penn had a deal with Barstool Sports, which has its own branding, I guess, uh, issues. Is this a case of Penn upgrading to ESPN from Barstool? Because it's now getting rid of its stake in Barstool. 
That's right. So Penn CEO said on a call yesterday that they realized that if you look at the sports betting market right now, it's consolidated around two big players, FanDuel and DraftKings, and they really needed larger scale if they were going to try to compete there. Barstool certainly has a loyal following, but it's nowhere near as big as the following of, of ESPN, which is really a global brand. So yeah, this is an opportunity for Penn to uh, to use the ESPN name uh, to brand a sports book. Uh, they're also getting a lot of um, help, promotional help from ESPN. You're going to see ESPN talent uh, starting uh, this fall, start to promote ESPN bet on the air. So this is uh, a much bigger partnership than, than it was with Barstool. But the, par- the uh, partnership with Barstool was also uh, very rocky. Uh, there was a lot of uh, issues where Barstool got into trouble and uh, regulators fined them. They had difficulty getting uh, licenses in some states. So this was uh, a difficult uh, relationship for a controversial media company, a controversial person like Dave Portnoy, and a, a casino company that operates in a, a highly regulated industry. Well, Jerry, you know, take us through a little bit of the history there. And I, I just, you know, if you could expand on that, you know, we know that Penn bought into Barstool a few years back. I forget the number. But, you know, from what I understand, they're going to record a loss of between eight to eight hundred and fifty million dollars from the Barstool acquisition and then sub- subsequent sale to Dave Portnoy for one dollar. I wonder if you could just take us through a bit of that. And more importantly, what's the market reaction to this? I mean, Penn investors are, are excited about uh, the potential for ESPN. But yeah, if you go back uh, over three years ago was uh, when Penn, they first bought a 36% stake in Barstool. And then over the next few years, they ended up buying all of Barstool Sports. And they saw Barstool as an opportunity to reach a younger audience. Barstool Sports is mainly... Um, uh, geared towards men and, and younger men. Uh, so they saw an opportunity there to, to reach younger betters. Um, but there was a lot of controversy. I mean, there was a series of articles that um, where uh, claims of sexual harassment uh, from Dave Portnoy, um, and that you know was something that Penn had to deal with. There was examples of um, you know there was a Barstool Sports employee who made a video talking about his gambling losses, and they got fined in a state for that. There was a few other fines that they faced uh, because gambling is just it's a highly regulated industry, and and states um, are trying to you know, protect uh, betters and, and, you know, enforce uh, responsible gambling. So they ran into a lot of issues there. And so now, you know, they're selling it back to Dave Portnoy for uh, a whopping $1. And, and so, you know, this is really, ESPN is just a bigger brand. Um, and this is really a win for Dave Portnoy in a lot of ways that he sold his company for $550 million, bought it back for a dollar. Now, well, first of all, that dollar, that, that's more than I got in my bank account right now. But that's another story. I'm putting a kid through college. That, forget that part. Well, this has implications also in Canada, doesn't it? Well, yeah. So Penn also owns a separate brand called uh, The Score that operates in Canada. And, and that's not going to change. Um, but this is really a, a U.S. Uh, sports betting partnership between Penn and ESPN. And, um, you know, this is ESPN really diving into to betting in a way that they haven't before. They've had some deals with Caesars and DraftKings where if you went on the ESPN website, there would be some links, sports betting links. But this is a much, I mean, for ESPN to license its name to a sports book is, uh, you know, this is the company d- diving into sports betting much deeper than they ever have before. 
So, Jerry, Disney also reported earnings uh, yesterday, and one of the many things that we learned from the earnings report is that it's also raising prices on its streaming businesses, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus as well? Uh, ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, Hulu, the whole streaming suite uh, from Disney, uh, the prices are going up. And this this shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, this is something in the last few years, uh, Wall Street's really changed its focus from we just want to see you grow subscribers as fast as you can to now uh, investors really want to see profits. And these companies have been hemorrhaging hundreds of millions of dollars in their streaming business, and they're really under pressure to, to cut those losses. So we're seeing the prices of these streaming services across the industry going up. Okay, so my question here is, is Disney raising prices because it has the pricing power to do so or because it needs to do it? I think whether they have the pricing power is, is remains to be seen. I think that's the big question when you raise prices on streaming is do people, um, you know, are they going to cancel if you raise the, the price by one or two or three dollars a month? Uh, but they also are under a lot of pressure to raise prices, uh, not just because they're trying to reach profitability in streaming, but if you think about ESPN, they are the cost of sports rights keeps going yeah. up. They're competing against tech companies. Um, so they, you know, t- to be able to afford those sports rights, the cost of ESPN plus. Plus, uh, needs to keep increasing. Jerry, let me answer the question I asked for you before. The price of Penn shares rose 18% intraday on the 9th. That was Thursday on the announcement. I think it closed the day up 9, 10%. At the same time, DraftKings and FanDuel were down anywhere from what, 8 to 10%. You know, talk me through this. Is ESPN that powerful? Is that name, is that brand going to be that powerful that Penn can overlook the $850 million write down from Barstool and just, you know, shareholders are just looking through that? I think there's there's some skepticism about this ESPN Penn uh, marriage uh, because we now have a history of sports betting companies and sports media companies um, getting together and that not working out. Um, Penn and Barstool being one example. A few weeks ago, Fox Bet shut down. That was a partnership between Fox, uh, Rupert Murdoch's broadcasting company, and Flutter, um, which is a, a big uh, gambling company. So you know, we've seen a few examples. I mean, the the idea, the strategy is that if you could merge these two worlds of sports betting and sports media, you, you know, you're watching sports on TV and you're getting promotions to bet. And then you go on your phone and place a bet. And that was the, the whole logic behind it. But we're seeing more and more of these sports betting apps shut down. And some of them are, um, you know, examples where sports media and sports betting have combined. I just think it's a really tough time right now for anybody to Start fresh in the sports betting industry. FanDuel and DraftKings have you know upwards of seventy percent market share combined. Uh, it, so it's it's really it's a difficult business. You have to spend a lot of money upfront with advertising, a lot of money on uh, promotions to attract people to to make bets on your app. It's a tough business, and there's two players that are just so big right now that ESPN is obviously a huge name, and I think investors are excited about. The potential there, but I, I think there's some skepticism that they can really make a dent in um, in this industry. Well, Jerry, Jerry, let me just ask you. Oh, can I just ask sir. one more question here? I mean, in terms of what this means for Barstool, right? I mean, I just want to read you this quote from Dave Portnoy. He goes, "For the first time in forever, we don't need to watch what we say, how we talk, what we do. It's back to the pirate ship." So, does this mean Barstool is going to basically retrench, refocus on sort of that? Uh, gray area of the market, you know, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, that type of an audience. And and what does that mean for Dave Portnoy in terms of, you know, you know, his pizza review? I mean, he just did Grig Street Pizza up here in Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, I want to know, is this going to impact 
his ability to review pizza joints all over the East Coast. Thoughts? <laughs> I, I'm not a pizza expert, but I, I and I'm not too worried about Dave Portnoy uh, financially. Uh, but I think it's going to be challenging for Barstool Sports uh, now that they're no longer part of this larger uh, casino company that sort of shielded uh, them from scrutiny. They're now a standalone digital media company. Uh, in a business that's really challenging. You've seen in the last year alone, we've seen Vice Media file for bankruptcy. Uh, BuzzFeed's stock is is down dramatically from when they went public. Uh, Vox, another digital media, big digital media company, has had layoffs. Gawker Media shut down for a second time. This is a really, really tough business. We saw yesterday in Penn's financial disclosures that Barstool lost money in the first six half first six months of last year of this year. So. It's, it's tough. Um, he certainly feels unshackled now that he doesn't have to worry about state gambling regulators monitoring what his employees are doing and saying. But um, it's going to be a tough road for Barstool if they want to try to um, build a, a real business in, in digital media. Oh, Damien, pizza. What a cheesy question. <laughs> See what I did there? See, the pizza has cheese, and then... It, oh, okay, Michael Barr. Okay, all right. We're hungry, gotta, too. You got to explain <laughs> the joke. It's not good. Anyway, uh, Jerry Smith, our own Bloomberg, thank you so much for joining us right here on the Bloomberg Business of Sports, sir. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Our thanks to Bloomberg's Jerry Smith for joining us. Now we turn to one of the biggest events in sports this summer, the Women's World Cup, with some of the biggest powerhouses seeing early exits, including the U.S. Wow. Sweden wins. Tough result for the U.S. who played their best, yet are eliminated. To get us up to speed on some of the big surprises in this year's World Cup, we welcome, you all know her, Bloomberg's Vanessa Perdomo. Hello, Vanessa. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Hello, hello. It's great to be here. Well, I'm just going to ask the question that everybody in America is asking. What in the hell happened to the women's team in the United States for the World Cup? Isn't that what we're all asking ourselves? And I don't think anyone has an answer. You listen to all the, you know, the pundits, the analysts, and they're all like, this is not the U.S. Women's National Team. It's not what they were built for. A lot of, you know, the old players, even who are still friends with the team, is they're questioning, you know, the mentality and the way that you can celebrate uh, getting into the round of 16 as they did because they were like, if it wasn't win or bust, not even final, mm -hmm. it was you have to win or it's a bust. Right. You know, that was the mentality of this team for so long. So when you look at the breakdown of what happened, it's 
the veterans who were still there, I mean, half the veterans who technically should be playing are all hurt. Becky Sauerbronn, Tobin Heath, Kristen Press. And then you have the veterans who are playing not at their best. And it just didn't gel with the new new stars of the team who are stars. They they're gonna be incredible, but they just weren't ready for this moment. We saw it with so- Sophia Smith coming up for that penalty kick in the US for a Sweden game. She wasn't ready for the moment. Missed the net. It's still three two. And she will be one day. It just it wasn't there yet. So the fact that it even came down to penalty kicks uh, infuriates a lot of people because there was so much expectation built into this U.S. team. I've heard a lot of commentary that this team like lost the game. It's not that they didn't score the penalty kicks, but they it was their game to lose, and they didn't deliver when they needed to during the game, during regulation. Right. I think when you take a look at the stat line for this game, it was U.S. had 58% possession, 11 shots on goal. And let me tell you, I was a goalkeeper, mm. 11 saves at a tournament like this is unbelievable. I mean, yeah. it was a record. So to do something like that is incredible. So Sweden played a good game, but you have to convert. And that's just been their problem. Alex Morgan didn't score this entire tournament. That's unheard of, mm-hmm. you know. So they just missed out on all these opportunities. And for some reason, the coach, Vlako is getting a lot of criticism for the fact that he just wasn't yep. substituting at all. And it was very weird. You had to bring in fresh legs. And he did. Well, I mean, you're, you're taking me right there. I mean, everyone, I mean, Alexi Lalas, Carly Lloyd, all the old players are just crushing, you know, the team and, you know, saying, hey, they'd rather be taking selfies than being out on the pitch. But like, let's really talk about, you know, um, Andonovsky, um, the U.S. coach, and the fact that those players were on their last legs in Sweden. I mean, apparently, you know, their coach had been resting them all throughout, you know, the playing round. So I wonder, you know, how much of this blame uh, kind of has to be put on that of the coach. Oh, it's it's massively onto him. I think you can't just blame the players. You know, I think when you go through multiple games and you're not scoring, that's where the coach comes into play and they say, we need to make a change. And he only made a change once, substituting Lynn Williams in for the um, having her start for the Portugal game. But why not bring her in the game before? She didn't play until she started. That just doesn't really make sense. You know, I mean, she did play for like 10 minutes. It doesn't make sense. The Sweden team, every single person on their bench played, except for the substitute goalkeepers. So it really comes down to why would you not bring in fresh legs? We saw the Netherlands game. We were so close to scoring. All you needed was two more people out there having fresh legs, getting people, getting closer to scoring. It, It brings energy that you need. This is soccer. This is football. Everybody does it. It's not... A you know nuts thing to do. Everybody brings in subs. The U.S. is number one in the world. That includes the players on the bench. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, do we do? I want to put an emphasis on instant replay, and Ugh. more. Do we need that? Because I saw a goal that was not called. I'm looking at it. They play. They gave. They had the replay. The whole blasted ball is in there, and I, no, it's not. It's not a goal. I'm like, so. Uh, yeah. We need. I'm sorry. That that's me throwing an opinion in there. No, I mean it's it's what? definitely true. I think 
it needs the replays for some reason just weren't there this tournament. I don't really know why. I mean, Golden Line technology is important, but I think the VAR needs to be better. Replays need to be better. It, it definitely failed, you know, yeah. in this tournament multiple times, and you even saw it in in the the penalty shootout where. We were watching, not knowing if the ball was saved or not at the end of the game, and Sweden's celebrating, and it's like, no, I saw her save that ball. And you don't know. They didn't replay it for like two minutes, and it was just so confusing. And if I was a listener, I would have also been really gutted, and I was so sad, like just looking at her and feeling for her, because she did everything she could. Yeah, including, didn't she score a goal? Yeah, she took a penalty kick. And okay, again, I'm saying I was a goalkeeper. I loved penalty kicks, by the way. A lot of people don't like how the game ends in penalty kicks. It is the greatest feeling in the world. Saving a penalty kick, (laughs) winning on penalty kicks. It's also the worst feeling in the world to lose. But like, it really, I was listening to a podcast the other day about Michelle Akers was on legendary U.S. women's soccer team player. And she said penalty kicks, that is what separates people from you know, from great to good, mm-hmm. your mentality. It's that Mamba mentality that not everybody has that this U.S. team didn't show, right? So to be able to save a penalty kick and score one is is nuts. When she stepped up, I, I my heart stopped. I was like, don't do this. Because if you miss it, you can't go back and save one. Your, your mentality is right, screwed up. Right, right, right. But I mean... Whew, she made it and then almost made the save afterwards because that's such a baller move. Uh, Vanessa, you know, it, it hasn't been all bad news in women's soccer. And look, sure. I mean, you know, Alyssa Nair in the U.S. aside, you know, there have been some great stories. And, you know, I don't know if you're able to comment on it, but I've been reading about Jamaica, Nigeria, South Africa, unfortunately, all of whom are just knocked out at the round of 16. But just to make it there when some of these teams, such as Jamaica, weren't even a team only a few months back. You know, I wonder if you can comment on that. You know, Nigeria, you know, I had heard that the Nigerian Soccer Federation wasn't even going to pay the agreed upon amount to the women's team once they found out they were getting paid extra money for getting it to the group of 16. I mean, some incredible stories there. I just wonder if you can comment at all. Yeah, absolutely. There there has been some incredible stories. I think that one of the things that we need to remember about this World Cup instead of just, I mean, we're all reeling from the U.S. losing, but there has been some incredible momentum. South Africa knocking out Italy and Germany. I mean, that was, I mean, nuts and all of these things that happened for Morocco to go through, South Africa to go through. And they were playing great, too. It's not that you just squeezed by. Jamaica didn't let up a goal until, you know, uh, the knockout stages. But with Jamaica, I think that one of the problems with that they were having is their federation just isn't very professionalized yet. And you see it that one of the players moms had to start a GoFundMe page Mm -hmm. to get the girls what they felt like they needed. That's right. In order. Bob Marley's daughter, right? Bob Marley's daughter put it together. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Marley's daughter, like she used her own personal fortune to help these girls get there. And then the mom, one of the girls moms crowdfunded about $48,000 to get the team just the necessities they needed to train, to get a camp together, you know. And I talked to people at FIFPRO, which is the um, the uh, people who help out the actual teams against the federations, and they said that FIFA gives everything they can to the federations. Everybody gets the same amount. The U.S. gets the same amount. Jamaica gets the same amount. Nigeria gets the same amount. But it's up to the federations to give out the money 
And that's where the problem that Jamaica and Nigeria are having, that their federations just aren't doing it right now. And after Nigeria was done playing, FIFPRO came out with a statement saying that they are going to be in a battle with their federation to help the girls get the money that they're deserved because they haven't been paid yet. You learn something new every day because at first of all, I realized that you were a goalie. Yes. I'm like, man. Now, Do you have one goalie? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, no joke. Wow. It, it is. I'm okay. Stupid bar. All right. Tell us about. I want to hear about this career as a goalie oh. when you're in school or yeah. what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's funny too because I'm sure it surprised you, not for everybody. At home knows this, but I'm only 5'3", so I'm sure it's surprised that I was a goalkeeper. Uh, yeah, I played at Duquesne University in uh, Pittsburgh, D1. and the, uh, We were in the Atlantic 10, won the Atlantic 10 championship my senior year. Ooh. And yeah, I might have been MVP of the tournament, whatever you know, <laughs> happens. <laughs> might have been. The goat of the tournament, here we go. <laughs> That is really cool. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Vanessa Bernomo, thank you so much. Bloomberg's own right here talking about what happened to the women's team. By the way, before we let you go, what do you think will happen now that this was Megan Rapinoe's last World Cup? Do you think now she goes to the booth or what happens? I don't think she would do that. I think what she... And Sue Bird, I imagine them being team owners of multiple Ooh. teams across the yeah. across the women's sports franchise, but, uh, WNBA and NWSL. That's what I see for her in the future. That's pretty sweet. I like that. Uh, Vanessa, thank you again for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Up next on the show, we talk college football and some of the recent conference shakeups with Mountain West Conference Commissioner Gloria Navarez. That's straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr, Scarlett Foo, and Damian Sassauer. The college football world saw another big shakeup with Oregon and Washington announcing they will join the Big Ten, leaving the Pac-12 with just four teams and the Big Ten with a whole lot of teams. 
Here to help us make sense of what's going on with all the conference realignments, we're happy to welcome Gloria Navarez. She is the commissioner of the Mountain West Conference, the very first Latina conference commissioner in D1 history, and only the second FBS commissioner overall. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Thanks for having me, and no promises on helping you sort this out. (laughs) I've been a fan of sports since... The basketball had laces, and and now I am totally confused about the realignment here of what's happening uh, in uh, the college uh, sports. Can you help us take us through what in the world is going on? I think at the center of, of all this, and it's no secret, is about uh, media contracts and the sport of FBS football. It really drives the value. Um, one of the things that really just, you know, I, I am a Cal grad. I went to law school there, but Stanford is voted the best athletic department almost two decades running, and they're left out of having a place to land in this round. And it's just, it's just unthinkable. Yeah, I kind of feel like we're at a point where. Every time we talk about the Pac-12, it's like RIP Pac-12 because it's only a matter of time before more schools leave, and there aren't that many schools left. I know that you worked uh, at Pac-12 with the Pac-12 for a while from 2010 to 2018, uh, overseeing all conference sports and championships except football. How much blame does Larry Scott deserve, uh, the former commissioner of Pac-12, when he was trying to build his own network as opposed to partnering with ESPN and Fox in terms of where we're at right now? You know, it's hard to hang percentage blame on any singular person. It's definitely been a process. And, you know, at the beginning of Larry's tenure, remember, he brought in an amazing, you know, record-breaking top-of-the-market media deal and rebranded, and it, it was Camelot to a large degree for those of us in the organization. But certainly the network, you know, I really wasn't too involved in a lot of the behind-the-scenes decision-making, but the network at its onset was intended to be a platform for the Olympic sports and championships and really was quite well thought of, considered very successful. But then something changed. (laughs) I don't know what to put my finger on, Mm -hmm. but certainly the inability to get the network on DirecTV was, I think, one of the turning points that changed perception on whether the network was of value or not. Do you think it was the right idea, but the wrong time? I think it was the right idea. I question whether the structure of it, having seven regional networks underneath a singular network, that, in my amateur opinion, might have been the piece that was a little bit too much for uh, an innovative network like Pac-12 Network. Gloria, you came from the West Coast Conference, you know, and while there, you kind of, I think... You engaged in an agreement with ESPN and, and two other national television partners in CBS Sports and Stadium. You know, talk to us a little bit about the Mountain West. You know, what makes it unique? I know its slogan is above the rest. I mean, the schools have the highest, did you know this, Michael Barr, the highest elevation in NCAA Division One sports. I'm talking Wyoming, War Memorial Stadium, 7,200 feet above sea level. And the ball is loose! Look at this, loose in the end zone! It's going to be a touchdown for Wyoming! Talk to us, Gloria, about, you know, the schools that are currently in your conference and what the attraction is. The Mountain West, in my opinion, it was very attractive to me when I was first interviewing for the job. 
because of what they represent. It's the highest level of football. We're an FBS league, and we represent large public institutions that, in a lot of cases, are the only show in town. I, you know, went to big public high school, college, same thing, and, you know, it, it just has a grittiness and a work ethic, a lot of first-generation, first-opportunity, you know, world-expanding type experiences, and many land-grant institutions. So I just, even though we're probably one of the youngest leagues, we're celebrating our 25th season this year in existence, and if you recall, the Mountain West was the original conference realignment disruptor 25 years ago when they separated from the WAC and formed a new league, which at that time was unheard of. You know, it just really has a lot of innovation. I I really like geographic footprint. We have a lot of vacation destinations and really, really interesting and cool and unique geographic locations. Well, to show you how old I am, I'm from the era back in the day when college football was on and Chris Schenkel was calling the game and Dave Dials was back in the studio and they had these huge boards didn't even have graphics you know back then you just had you know the <laughs> scoreboard and you know it would the numbers would flip around and this and that whatever and back then you didn't even think about something called NIL today I just wonder how much that has changed college sports. It really has. And the other piece that happened around the same time, and I feel you, Michael, transferring was an anomaly. You know, folk only transferred and something cataclysmic happened. You know, you failed out of school or had to go home for some reason, and it just wasn't part of the culture. And, and I do think I would like to see us get our arms around name, image, likeness in the sense of allowing the schools to get a little more involved to both protect the athletes. I've heard stories about signing away rights into perpetuity or signing deals that don't come to fruition and students not having recourse. And, you know, and also just to really, I I, I don't agree with how it's being used for pay for play. And I I don't have the answer to that, but I really hope that um, I think there's good thinking out there. I know that there was a subcommittee in the NCAA a couple years ago that, that did some really good thinking. And if we could just resurrect some of that and get it through the system, I think we'd be in a, a little bit better place with NIL. And it put the smaller schools at a serious disadvantage. There certainly is a disadvantage. I, I would posit that it's the NCAA is a huge ecosystem. And within it, there's always been some the haves and the have-nots. I don't know that if it's increased that disparity, (laughs) but it certainly put a spotlight on it. With all these changes across uh, the different conferences, where does that leave the MWC? How do you see its role in further realignment across the different conferences? Well, you know, being out west has its pros and cons. Sometimes we grouse about our late time zones and, you know, news not making it over to the Rockies till the next morning. (laughs) But in this case, The geography has, until this last couple of weeks, really slowed the impact of conference realignment, I think, until UCLA and USC moved to the Big Ten, Um, because that travel is a lot, you know. Um, So for the Mountain West, we feel really good. We are united, and I'm not naive. That could change. (laughs) Industry could change. Something could change, and, and that unity could change. But for right now, we feel really good about our position. Um, we have solidarity in, in hanging together and see what this next round has for us. 
And, you know, we feel we provide a really good student-athlete experience. We compete in the FBS at the highest level. And in the new expanded playoff, now that may also be subject to change, but next year, Mm -hmm. an ability for a league like ours to get an automatic bid to the college football playoff, which is the goal. That's Mountain West Conference Commissioner Gloria Navarez. We've got more with her coming up next. You know, we're in the middle of a strategic plan at the Mountain West right now, and what is so amazing to me and heartwarming is that DEI is a very central pillar of that is the common theme throughout our league. Stick around. You're listening to Bloomberg, business of sports, Bloomberg Radio, around the world. Thanks for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big old money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr for Scarlet Foo and Damian Sassauer. We're talking with Mountain West Conference Commissioner Gloria Navarez about the state of her conference. There's been a lot of moving around in college football with teams moving conferences. Let's dive back into our discussion, starting with her thoughts on reports that San Diego State tried and failed to create a new Power Five conference. The interesting thing about Power Five is it's a media designation. You know, there's three things that categorize a FBS Division I conference, and that's NCAA voting authority, and that's called autonomy, and that's where you get the name A5. Then there's FBS designation, which is the classification of football, meaning you have to compete with FBS institutions, eight of them, for eight years straight. If you fall below that standard, you have two years to cure. And then there's CFP, the playoff designation. And that is controlled by the CFP board of directors, one president from the 10 FBS conferences. So from a Mountain West perspective, I think the concept of Mountain West schools breaking off to form a new league or to become a new Pac-12 didn't seem to have a lot of momentum Mm -hmm. because there's just a lot of unanswered questions about, you know, how that's done, whether they can retain the CFP status of the Pac-12, what are the assets and liabilities of the organization. There's just a lot of due diligence that needs to be done. So our schools are waiting for more information. Gloria, you're a 25-year veteran of intercollegiate athletics. You are the second commissioner in the history of the Mountain West Conference. But I want you to forget all that for a minute. I want you to think about, as an alumni, as a former student at the University of California, where you received your JD, I believe you worked there as well. Talk to us right now, purely as an alumnus of the University of California, one of the four schools left in what was once the Pac-12 what do you feel inside about that, about being one of those four schools left and, and what the future holds for UCAL athletics, broadly speaking? Absolutely heartbroken. I mean, I was still a little bit in shock about the UCLA-USC move and trying to picture the Pac-12, Pac-10 without those two schools. There's so much history, so many rivalries. The league was 108 years old. I grew up in the Bay Area. I mean, it's always been about the Pac-12 and all the great rivalries. And, you know, when I think about all the people at the Pac-12 conference office (laughs) and the network, I think they have about 300 employees. And think about all the great things the Pac-12 was doing, the student-athlete health summit and getting all their medical experts together to talk about athletic health issues. They, They did this really innovative project 
about data collection and, and data sharing, and they had an independent sales arm, Pac-12 sales, and it's just, you know, while they took a lot of heat at the end around their media agreements, I mean, there were some amazing student-athlete-centric programs built in the Pac-12 during the last five to ten years. Let's talk about something that you have achieved, and you had become the first Latina commissioner in Division I history. Can you take us through that and, and what that important landmark means? You know, throughout my career, being you know not in the leadership chair until I was at the West Coast Conference, it, it wasn't really a thing for me. And the day that I had to help draft the press release about being the WCC commissioner, and I was trying to figure out, I'm actually half Mexican, a fourth Filipino, and a fourth Irish. I mean, what do you do with that? <laughs> You're representing in every way. <laughs> I mean, that's the entire headline, right? I mean, <laughs> too much. The American dream. Uh, and so, you know, we narrowed it down, and it's a true first Latina or even Latino um, Division One. There's only 32 Division One commissioners. Um, and it, and it became a story, and, and I realized that it's an important one. So I tried to lean into it. Um, DEI programming is very, very important to me. And, you know, we're in the middle of a strategic plan at the Mountain West right now. And what is so amazing to me and heartwarming is that DEI is a very central pillar of that is the common theme throughout our leagues. We have the most diverse board of directors, our college presidents in Division One. Our uh, athletic director room, both in gender and race, our athletic director room is extremely diverse, our head coaches rooms. And so it's just, it, it feels like a very welcome environment. I, I, I appreciate it. And we appreciate that diversity, but it took a while for there to be a female commissioner, right? Um, Judy McMcLeod of Conference USA was the first or the second. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the conference itself, Gloria, you know, and, and, and how it's generating revenue and, and just looking ahead here. I mean, I've got some data in front of me here. It looks like some of the top schools, right, ranked by total revenue from athletics were, in this order, San Diego State, the United States Air Force, and Colorado State, each of them getting between 60 to $70 million, you know, per university, per institution. Football's such an important part of the equation here, right? I got to believe that's the driver. You know, I think of the largest football stadiums in the conference. I think of UNLV. I think of Allegiant, right? 65,000. I do think of the U.S. Air Force, Falcon Stadium, 47,000. Talk to us about the plans for some of the, you know, some of the universities to expand their presence in Division One football. And, you know, because of that model, like you said, the large portion of the revenue coming in through the conference office is from the CFP playoffs and from our media rights, and which is largely, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, anchored by football. And so our, our teams really aim to compete at the highest level and win national championships. But as you know, the football, if they do well, <laughs> all boats rise with that tide. And so there is an effort, and we, we think about – how we structure our league play, how we structure our championship in order to get our two best teams in our championship game and best position us to get that AQ into the expanded playoffs. I want to go more, if I can, into the idea by San Diego State to try to create the Power Five conference with the Pac-12, Mountain West, ACC members. And uh, apparently it, uh, well, 
it didn't work. Somebody, somebody said no, and we're having none of that. Can you take us through that and what happened specifically? Well, I'm not privy to conversations that San Diego State may or may not have had um, around that. I do know, and, you know, they've been very open about exploring options. But I think the idea was the Pac-12 lost a lot of schools. They had four left. Was it possible for those four to pick up enough schools, you need minimum eight to retain FBS status, to retain the Pac-12 brand and the Pac-12 standing in the CFP. CFP is where you get your lion's share of the revenue based on being one of the top five conferences, as well as voting authority over how the CFP is run, like a weighted voting authority. So the the central question was, could the Pac-12 add more schools and keep that designation? And right now the thinking is, and I think it's correct, that fairly quickly the college football playoff board, one president for me to attend FBS institutions, will meet and discuss whether the Pac-12 conference gets to keep that, what the media is calling, power five standing. And there's a low likelihood of that, in my opinion, if the Pac-12 backfills with what schools that not from the Big Ten, ACC, SEC, and ACC. There's so much realignment between the different conferences now. Um, you know, Big Ten has become something much bigger. Pac-12 has become something much smaller. Where do you think we are in this process? Are we in the, and I'm going to borrow a metaphor from baseball, are we in the second inning? Are we in the fourth inning? Are we in the eighth inning? I wish I had a good answer for it because I feel like we're in game two. <laughs> oh, of, of how many how many games in this series? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, right? <laughs> I mean, really, because the change is so significant, right? This is a change unlike we've ever seen before and a consolidation of leagues from five geographically balanced to four very large league. So, you know, I really, I think this is new territory. I I think those leagues are going to be doing a ton of work to figure out. I mean, I can't imagine the work behind creating schedules and bracketing tournaments and doing all the things tactically that create a season in every single sport. (laughs) Everyone's going to have to add new staff because this is such a, you know, a mind puzzle. Absolutely. Why was that the Pac-12 when we added Colorado and Utah? And that was two schools pretty close in geography, and that was no easy lift. So I just, I mean, the the 3X magnitude that we're dealing with here is, yeah, there's some scheduling folks whose minds are blowing up right now. So, so last question for you, Gloria. I mean, in lieu of what is going on right now in college sports, specifically, you know, the blow up, let's call it, of the Pac-12, You know, you're talking to, you know, your colleagues at the various different universities each and every day, all day. You know, what are you hearing from them? Is there fear? Is there concern? Or is there excitement about the future of your conference? I mean, what's the vibe you're getting? What's sentiment like? Good question. You know, a lot of, at first, what is happening? Oh, my goodness. What should we be doing, right? Kind of, uh, you know, I played basketball, so I imagine everyone just immediately went into three-point stand. What should we do? (laughs) 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 And then I think the more we got information, the more, you know, we did the research and really looked into it. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a lot of good connections and and colleagues and I'm able to 
you know, pick the brains of some folks that are, are deep in this. And we we came out, especially Monday night after our board meeting, feeling really good about our position. I mean, worst case scenario, we're the same league we were two weeks ago, which was a pretty damn good place to be. <laughs> Best case scenario, you know, we have some opportunities that we capitalize on. And, and those range from, you know, maybe something with the Pac-12 as it is now, or maybe being a, a safe landing spot for some schools, but all of those for us have a lot of positive upside. So we're pretty optimistic, and, and I feel like our presidents understand what, what a great league we have, what a great student-athlete experience we provide, and yeah, I, I feel pretty good about our position right now. Our thanks to Mountain West Conference Commissioner Gloria Navarez for joining us. If you missed any of that conversation, check it out on demand. Now, on the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, you can find that wherever you get your podcast. Up next on the show, we take a look at cycling with National Cycling League co-founder and CEO Paris Wallace. That is straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. We explore some of the big issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Damien Sassauer. This sounds really unique, and I expect this to like take off. Just We just got to get the word out. That's where I come in. And that's where this man comes in, Paris Wallace, CEO and co-founder of the National Cycling League. Paris, welcome to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Thank you so much for having me. Excited for this discussion today. We were talking about this just off the air. Is like, and, and I'm just saying, I can see this just taking off and, and going wild here. Tell us about the National Cycling League. Yeah, well, the very easy elevator pitch is we are taking the second most popular sport in the world, cycling, 50 million people here in the U.S., 2 billion around the world, and we're applying the same 
structure and business model as every other professional sports league around the world. So applying a proven business model to one of the largest sporting markets out there. How are we doing that? Uh, well, right here in the in the U.S., we have a series of races, um, closed circuit races, incredibly popular areas. Our first race, believe it or not, was actually on Miami Beach. We shut the beach down, down Ocean Drive. We had 50 laps men and women competing side by side uh, in a co-ed format. Um, 20,000 people showed up, the largest bike race in the last decade for our very first race. Over 400,000 people watch from around the globe. So we're really off to the races, really excited about the new format and really uh, being the home for these 2 billion cyclists around the world. Paris, can you explain how you came to start the National Cycling League? Because your background is in health technology. Uh, you founded Ovia Health in 2012, which is a digital health platform for women and families. Uh, you founded Good Star Genetics. What's the tie-in to cycling, or is this a hobby that became a hobby and a passion that became a business? Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Northern California, was a passionate cyclist. And actually, the first business I ever started was in high school, a company called Dirtmart.com, which was one of the first online bike retailers. Um, it's how I got really hooked on entrepreneurship. I was in class one day in high school, and I made more money on my online bike store that me and my two friends had created at 16 than I did working full time, 40 hours a week at, at the bike shop. And I said, OK, I'm hooked. Um, and so I uh, ended up college, business school, um, and my last year at Harvard Business School actually started Good Start Genetics out of my dorm room um, with the idea of, frankly, trying to lessen the, the healthcare outcome gap for women and families in the U.S. So 12 years later, uh, had helped over 25 million people start their families, change the way that women's health was practiced. And a lot of it was saying, look, women have uh, women's issues have not been invested in, in healthcare. There's a massive gap here and a massive market, and I think that we can do something about it. I didn't know anything about healthcare when I when I started out, but you know, learned it and built two very successful businesses that that were bought by public companies. And I think this is very similar, right? Not only are we building, as I said, uh, a formalized sport around the second most popular participatory sport in the world, but we're also doing it. Uh, with uh, majority, minority, and female ownership, majority, minority, and female-led company. We have a female CEO. I'm the chairman. It's Black-founded. Um, and one of our big target markets is women. I like to say we can do better than just a pink jersey. Um, we actually value women and men's contributions equally. And that's the exact type of thing that made Ovia and Good Start so successful. Paris, you talk about the audience for for cycling, two billion globally, fifty million here in the U.S. But you know, for me, you know, obviously cycling took a pretty big hit following the Lance Armstrong doping scandal of 2012. What's the state of cycling globally? I mean, talk to us about you know the UCI World Tour. It's 38 events per year. I think we have the Vuelta España coming up at the end of this month. How is the NCL different? I mean, what's the format really? Yeah, so. It's interesting. Looking at cycling, obviously, uh, the Tour de France and these longer races, incredibly popular, especially here in the U.S. when, when Lance was racing. And we won't we won't get into that. But obviously, <laughs> that took took a big hit. Right. But what's interesting and most people don't know is cycling was the first and the oldest professional sport. In fact, Madison Square Garden was initially created as a cycling venue back in the late 1800s. OK, that um, I did not know. And, it's pretty cool. Yeah, Google it. You can see some pretty fantastic photos. And basically, it was just created. The format, we believe, was fundamentally created for a very different 
audience, um, one that was willing to, you know, sit there on the sidelines to watch folks, pa- you know, for four hours to watch folks, <laughs> folks pass at 30 to 40 miles an hour for about 20 seconds. And that's that. So the idea of, you know, having a 21 day bike race that's 80 hours long, um, you know, the modern world doesn't really have time for it. So we've really gotten rid of the traditional cycling rules and are trying to create something that is uniquely American. So short course racing, one mile courses, multiple laps. The way it works is uh, we have teams, 10 teams of 12 people, 120 people total, half of them women, half of them men. Um, One of those squads races first, either men or women, 25 laps. A lap takes about two minutes. There's a scoreboard. And so you know who won, you know what's happening. Um, There's substitutions. And so you have riders coming in and coming out. Every lap counts, big points on the last lap. In Miami Beach, the women rode first. After 25 laps, they leave the course. The men come on, the scoreboard doesn't change. And so it's the men's points plus the women's points that equals the team's points for the day. And then the record across the season that uh, determines the champion for the year. Yeah, which and, seems- and, and Paris, just to, you know, I hear these names like all-rounder, striker, sprinter, diesel. I mean, is this all a function of this new format that you've developed? You know, those are, it's interesting, right? We are leveraging kind of the existing cyclists, the existing infrastructure, and we're inventing it. It's new rules, new format, new way of racing. And so, yeah, we're using that terminology now, but in the future, I think it's all going to be rewritten, right? Because the traditional cycling is who can ride the fastest over 2,500 miles, over 80 hours, over 21 days. We're saying who can ride the fastest in one hour, 30 laps all out. And so the way I like to describe it is traditional cycling, the Tour de France is a marathon and we're the hundred yard dash. So we mm-hmm. have the Usain Bolts of the world that are his personality, his type of strength going for it. And then on top of that, we have, you know, this this really innovative and I think built for the future gender equal format where men and women's contributions are treated equally and the men can't win, win without the women and the women can't win without the men. I like to think about an NBA example, which is, you know, imagine if the WNBA played the first half and the NBA played the second half, you wouldn't have to choose if you were a WNBA or an NBA fan, you'd just be a basketball fan. So Mr. Burns and me, we decided we want to get into this race. So we've got that. We both have our high wheelers and we're out there and, uh, and I'm sure you're going to get, we're going to get there and you're going to be like, what Sam Hill is this? Get out. There's got to be some rules to the bike. What What are some of the regulations for the bike itself? Yeah, absolutely. So we're actually sanctioned by USA Cycling, which is the uh, official cycling Olympic Committee of the United States that falls under the UCI, which is like, you know, FIFA for for cycling. Um, And so there are some specific rules that we follow that are sanctioned. Uh, Our our riders are actually in racing and our races are qualifying themselves for the Olympics um, and it counts towards those those records. The other piece is bad news. You're probably going to be outgunned on our teams. We have folks who have competed <laughs> in the Tour de France, have won some of the biggest European races, our Olympians, our national champions. You go for a ride with these folks and you understand the difference between a normal person and a professional athlete. And that difference is exponential. 
Smithers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got to ask Paris, what about broadcasting or being able to stream these races? You called the Tour de France a marathon, but it is, um, you know, the length of the race makes it compelling viewing on television or on your screen. What do you do or how do you maximize that for, you know, your equivalent of the 100 meter dash? Yeah, well, when we think about kind of the fan experience, we have a fantastic in-person experience, three races this year, Miami, Denver, uh, Atlanta, some of the best attended bike races in U.S. history. Um, Then we have a streaming deal with Warner Brothers Discovery and specifically with GCN, the global cycling network, which is incredibly engaged, which has an incredibly engaged audience of global cyclists, uh, over three million across the globe. And then lastly, we're building technology with our partner Wahoo that's going to allow you to see the cyclist output and the first person view. Get on your your smart trainer at home. Um, basically, get on your bike at home, put an iPad in front of you, watch the race and actually ride in it. So um, you'll be able to see how you can compare. And maybe that's how uh, Mr. Burns and Smithers can get in on the race <laughs> from home in their basement as opposed to in person. A lot less likely chance for them to fall and get hurt, too. So Paris, I, I wonder if you could help me out here because I'm just trying to better understand, you know, the state of U.S. cycling. Forget about global. You know, I, I think of Sepkus, you know, Matteo Jorgensen, Brandon McNulty. You know, these are top 30 in the world or close to it now. Um, you know, talk to us about the names, you know, at, um, you know, at the National Cycling League. Like, who should we be keeping an eye on? What teams? What what cyclists individually? I mean, you know, male, female, you know, who should we keep an eye on? Yeah, great, great question. So you mentioned some absolutely fantastic uh, U.S. Uh, world Tour riders. Um, unfortunately, if you want to go and see those riders ride here in the U.S., um, it's going to be very, <laughs> very difficult. Um, my guess is most of your listeners have never heard of those folks before. Um, so what we're trying to do is really bring cycling right into people's backyard, make it incredibly viewable, and then have it in a format that's a lot more welcoming. Um, you know, the Tour de France, I think, is the only race where the person who wins it doesn't actually ever Ever have to win a race, which is really confusing. Um, so we're trying to make it much more, uh, uh, I would say, accessible from intuitive. the shorter time frame. In an, yeah, intuitive, yeah, and accessible. You know, from a uh, two-hour investment versus a you know twenty-one day investment <laughs> to watch the race um, to having a scoreboard and sprint finishes that make it very obvious. The, the folks that are riding in the races are incredible. You know, and I think what's really interesting about these cyclists, and I'll, I'll give one example of someone who I personally uh, really respect her, her, her vision, her story, and the sacrifices she made. Um, Dr. Andrea Sear, who's yep. on our team in Miami Nights, um, she is a practicing physician, sports medicine, um, ER doctor. She took a year off to ride professionally, and she's second, and she's currently the, the second highest. Yeah. Woman in the U.S., you know, she took a pay cut to do this. So these are like Olympic athletes who are actually sacrificing um, to be able to do what they love. And that's a lot of what we're trying to change is saying, look, if you are not a distance uh, rider, you are a sprinter um, and you want to have a career being a professional cyclist here in the U.S., racing in the U.S. in front of home crowds. We're going to give you the opportunity to do that. And we've had hundreds of cyclists from around the world who have expressed interest in coming and riding with us because of the ability to to be stars. Right. And, you know, these sprinters will never be able to win the Tour de France. They that's just not what that race is really. uh, No one no one who's a sprinter can win it. But you can be a star in the NCL. And so we're attracting these folks that also have bigger personalities, are really some of the best known folks out there, which we're really excited about. 
So my radio flyer is now being put back in the garage, and <laughs> I've realized that there are a lot of big name athlete investors involved in this. This is this is going to be big time, big time. <laughs> Kevin Durant, Jalen Ramsey, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible uh, and humbling to have conversations with these folks that are that are absolutely at the top of their game um, and to a person. Uh, they understand the value of ownership, right? Even though obviously these guys are making a tremendous amount of money being players, they understand the difference between them and the owners and being part of the first majority minority and female owned professional sports league in the world with a focus on gender equity from the beginning. They get it and they want to be part of it. They want to show that, you know, women and minorities can be more than players. They can be players and they can be owners. And I think that's really motivating. Plus, they see the economic opportunity here, you know, that the the ability to ride this thing from, you know, basically zero where we started 18 months ago to what we expect in our building towards a, you know, multi-billion dollar enterprise in the next decade is an incredible investment opportunity that they're excited to, to be part of, especially since it also matches their uh, their view on how they want the world to be. Paris, you mentioned the Bay Area and, um, you know, the hills I'm sure that you had to climb when you were cycling as a fan and as, as someone who, who just used it as a way to, to stay active. What about mountain biking? I'm, I'm curious whether the NCL will expand to different terrain like mountain biking, because that has really kind of taken off in recent years, especially as uh, ski resorts look to uh, make sure that they can monetize uh, their terrain during the hot summer months. Yeah, it's a great question, you know, and I think a big piece of it is, is the sport a spectator sport or is the sport a participatory sport? So mountain biking has done a good job being both. Um, we're really focused on getting the format down with road cycling, big open roads, opportunities to have drones, to have the technology to, to allow races to happen in the metaverse and for, for fans to be able to participate in it really high-end uh, uh, videography that you get the type of experience from a viewer's perspective um, that 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 you expect being an NFL or NBA fan. Um, it's harder when you get into the woods, obviously, uh, to be able to have that same sort of viewer experience. So we're not writing anything off. We're very focused on executing on the strategy that, that we're looking at. But, you know, from gravel racing, which our riders are going to be competing in, in gravel races next year, hmm. um, to mountain biking, you know, we think the future is very very bright for cycling. It's one of the fastest growing sports uh, in, in the country and around the world. Um, and we think that once we establish that brand, have the fans and have the technology, there's a lot of different ways that we can expand both vertically and horizontally. I'm sorry, uh, stupid man alert. Gravel racing? I, I've never heard of that. What? What? It, please different tell me Different kind of that. bike, different kind of tire. Yeah. I, 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 what is it? I, I, I've never heard yeah, of that. Yeah. So, so once you, once you have your, your road bike, and then you have your mountain bike and, you know, for all cyclists, uh, it's N plus one. That's how many bikes you want. The number you have plus one more. So there's gravel bikes, which is <laughs> kind of like a beefed up road bike um, that has bigger tires that you can go on gravel roads, not mountain bike roads. It can't be that technical, but things like fire roads and other things that have really um, been incredibly popular and, and growing in popularity. I think the issue is, right, there's not kind of these sprints and, you know, it's it's a lot more of an individual sport. And again, you're going back to six, seven, eight hour races and and hanging on for, for eight hours to see who won's a little, a little bit tough for uh, current fans. 
you know, Paris, we mentioned some of your investors, some of the athlete investors. You know, I know you're one of the two co-founders, the other being David Mulligetta, obviously of Athletes First. He was the chap who negotiated Deshaun Watson's $230 million contract with the Cleveland Browns. Why isn't Deshaun Watson an investor in the NCL? No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, I mean, David's involvement in the company. Talk to us a little bit about that, what he's meant to the company, what it means to, you know, the company's plans going forward. Yeah, David just brings such a incredible wealth of knowledge and understanding, frankly, about the the good sides and and the not so good sides of current professional sports. So, you know, obviously he's been involved in helping us uh, get the word out in in connecting with with his extensive network, but also in just thinking through some of the fundamental questions that we've had and we're trying to answer about what is the sport of the future, right? What are the characteristics that work and don't work in the sport? And how do we build something that athletes are going to love to be part of, owners are going to be loved to be part of, fans are going to love to be part of. I I tell the team regularly that, that we can make mistakes. We're a startup. We just can't make any mistakes that any other league have ever made before. Uh, and David is a big part in ensuring that that we're that we're doing exactly that. Paris, how many bikes do you have? You said N plus one. How many do you have? <laughs> um, it depends on how you count. Uh, we, we split our time between Miami uh, and New England. And so I, I think only the Miami bikes or the New Hampshire bikes count. Um, and then, yeah. like, road bikes, mountain bikes, or gravel bikes, right? And so that it's, it's, it's too complicated to get into here. But let's just say uh, I do want another bike. <laughs> that is a great answer. <laughs> Well, listen, I know we're out of time, but you got to tell us uh, you've got some races, very important races that are coming up for the NCL, uh, especially one that's taking place, uh, let's say, let's call it late August. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very excited. Uh, In August, we have two races, uh, one in Denver, uh, which should be a fantastic race at Dick's Sporting Goods Park. And then we've actually partnered with the Porsche Experience Center in Atlanta, which is going to be amazing vip event uh 200 spots there um and we're gonna see uh what the fastest folks on two wheels can do on a track designed for the fastest cars on four wheels it's going to be great um so you know there's still space available if folks want to come out and check it out in person or we're going to be streaming on gcn uh so we're really excited wow gravel racing is like well, heck, back in my day as a kid, that was Tuesday. It was like, I didn't know that it really was a thing for gravel racing. That's really cool. It's wow. Yeah, well, I you know, I love spending other people's money on bikes, so we can connect <laughs> this. Uh, you know, I'll buy you one. We can you come up to New Hampshire. We can go for a ride. All right. <laughs> Ferris Wallace, CEO and co-founder, National Cycling League. Uh, there is no re- by the way this has been going on now for about a year and a half and you know th- this we're just getting the word out so hopefully this will just grow and explode hey NASCAR took a long time in its first year to start out and then it just took off so this will also thank you so much Paris for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports appreciate you all thank you this has been the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. We explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr on X at Big Bar Sports. And I'm on Twitter slash X at Scarlet Foo. And you can follow me on X at D Sassauer. Hey, download this show wherever you get your podcast. This has been the Bloomberg Business of Sports and Bloomberg Radio around the world. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.